This episode of the Patient Empowerment Program is brought to you by Altergenics. Altergenics is on a mission to transform the lives of people living with rare and ultra-rare diseases and is a proud partner of the N. Lorem Foundation. With multiple approved therapies and a deep pipeline of potential treatments and development, Altergenics is going beyond every day for the rare disease community. Learn more about how Altergenics is leading the future of rare disease medicine at altergenics.com. That's U-L-T-R-A-G-E-N-Y-X.com. Welcome to the Enlorm podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at Enlorm is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Anisense Technology, or ASO Technology, to discover, develop, and provide experimental ASO treatments to nanorail patients and to do that for free for life. Special guest today is Emil Kakis. Uh, Emil is chairman and CEO of Ultragenics, one of the uh, important companies that are involved in multiple um, uh, new medicines for, for rare diseases. Emil, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stan. Happy to be here. Yes, that's great. And so I, I assume, since you went to Pomona and then UCLA and never seemed to leave, that you, you're a California boy. Yeah, born and raised in California. My parents were Greek. They emigrated to the U.S. and they loved Southern California weather. <laughs> and that's why we started there. And I circulated around the bay, that uh, valley uh, for school. And... Uh, ultimately left when I came to join Biomarin in 1999. Yeah. So, uh, and, and as I understand it, your, your, your family is full of physicians of all sorts. Uh, so I guess you sort of were to the manner born uh, as, 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 as a physician scientist, huh? Yes. My father is a neurologist. My uncle was a nephrologist and the had a lot of their closest friends were physicians. So a lot of the families and people coming over are all physicians. Mm-hmm. Me and two of my siblings are physicians and two of us married physicians. So medicine became a core of kind of our life and living. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became a way of life and a way of thinking. Yeah. In terms of caring for patients and taking care of them. And, and really an old school approach, which is the all in type of care of physicians uh, where you do whatever you have to do and however late it takes you to get it done right. Yeah, as physicians always used to do and still should do, right? Right. And and so uh, after you finished undergrad, you then went to UCLA and it, you did a joint MD-PhD program, I think, right? Yes, that's the medical scientist training program. Uh-huh. They had just opened that program at UCLA in 1982 and I was lucky enough to get a slot because it was hard to get slots at that time and the great thing about that is it provided uh, tuition and fees and also gave you a stipend um, which was great um, great because otherwise seven years of medical school would be pretty darn expensive and a lot of debt it still is 
And uh, and were you always interested in pediatrics, or when did you become um, interested in neurology, pediatric neurology, and all that? Well, I didn't count, go to it immediately. I I became interested in genetic disease because of all the things that were going on at that time during my PhD years in the middle there of the eighties. Every week, a, a Nature Genetics journal came out with new genes being cloned, you know, new dysmorphology syndrome being figured out, the biology being learned, and it was a really exciting time for genetics. And that led me to natural thinking about medical genetics as a specialty, which naturally was usually preceded by a pediatrics residency, and so that was the direction I took to take advantage of the new discoveries in medical genetics. Uh-huh. So, so you 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 entered medicine, you became interested in, in pediatrics, then genetics, and then that led you to rare diseases? Is, is that sort of the progression of it? Well, with medical genetics, you're, you're always dealing with rare diseases pretty commonly. And as an academic physician, I was thinking of medical genetics cases and situations as natural experiments of people who have mutations and problems and while we manage our problems, we're also learning about the diseases through sure. these natural experiments. At the same time, when I started my fellowship as a medical genetics fellow, I was looking around for a project, a research project. And at that time, Dr. Neufeld had just cloned the gene for MPS1. Sure. And it was just the fortuitous timing. The cloning had just occurred. I was needed a fellowship project. And she was willing to take me on as a fellow. And that put me into studying MPS1. I didn't know anyone with the disease, nor did I know particularly much about it at all. And I had to get a crash course uh, learning about MPS and lysosomal diseases and meeting patients. And uh, it was a, a great starting point, but I had no idea that I'd be spending the next 30 years working in that area. Yeah. Well, life is always a surprise, isn't it? And so, uh, after you finished your residency and fellowship, then you joined the faculty at UCLA. So you sort of stayed homegrown for a long while, huh? Yes. Well, I took advantage of opportunities. I actually did a fast track pediatric residency. I only had two years of residency and then I went right into fellowship. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this happens in the university system, Stan, a faculty slot opened up mm-hmm. at Harbor and they said I could do my first year of faculty in concurrently with my third year of fellowship. And so I said, why would I say no to that? <laughs> I said, yes. So they need to fill the slot because if they don't fill it, someone might take it away. So I was, I just got lucky and I got started a year earlier as a faculty member. And, mm-hmm. um, my wife was at, had, um, finished, was a resident at Harbor UCLA and OBJN. Mm-hmm. And so we we had already established some roots in the area. Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, sounds like it managed to condense a little bit of time for you, which is always important when you're mm-hmm. when you're thinking about all the time that is invested in just getting ready to do some work. D- did you uh, did you discover a, a drug for MPS or uh, while you were at UCLA? Well, I wouldn't say I discovered it. I helped develop one. Uh-huh. The Dr. Neufeld had cloned the gene, and my first day of fellowship with her, she said to me, I think you should work on enzyme replacement therapy for MPS1. It was a lysomal disease missing an enzyme called iduronidase. 
And she thought we've never been able to make this enzyme in quantities, appropriate quantities with the right marker. Let's do that now. I, I was most interested in doing gene therapy, Stan. I really want gene therapy was just starting with French Anderson and mm-hmm. retroviral packaging. And I thought that was the, the sexiest science going on. And she crushed my spirit, right? That first meeting and said, no, you should do enzyme therapy. And I said, all right, I'll do enzyme therapy. Now, the reason the important part of the story, Stan, is that we all get excited about things, but sometimes our excitement is not well-placed and, for, and the, the retroviral stuff never really went very far. In the end, she put me on enzyme replacement. It had one distinct advantage over sexy science, and that is that enzyme replacement actually worked. <laughs> and therefore, yeah. the ability to change and treat someone, make them better, Stan, overtakes all the sexiness of science and fancy journal publishing and all the world you could think of disappear as important when you've actually been able to treat some patients and help them. Couldn't agree with you more. And I often talk about the fact that when people get excited about new drug discovery technologies, they forget time, failures, and dollars. And the fact that the vast majority of times you start out and it doesn't work. And gene therapy now is what, 40 years in and $50 billion in or something like that. And still um, a lot to be left to be done. And we'll we'll get to that in just a, a little bit, Emil. And so um, that sort of takes you into the, to the rare disease uh, repl- enzyme replacement. Is that why you ended up then going to Biomarin in, in 1980, 98 or 99? Yeah, um, I joined them officially in 98, but moved to the Bay Area in 1999. I stayed down south for one more year. But the transition to industry was a big change for me. I had planned to be an academic physician all my life, write R01 grants, do all kinds of studies, become a member of the National Academy, you know, get the accolades of your peers and do great science. But when I treated patients and saw them get better and realized how important that was to me and how important it was to have the adequate financial capability to do it, that I realized if I really wanted to make a difference in rare diseases, I'd be far better at going inside a company and advocating for them inside the company. And the reason I was important, Stan, at those times, and we're talking about, we're talking about 1998, at that time, rare disease was like Genzyme, was like the only one, there were the few um, people making, you know, taking generic products through, but there weren't people really doing rare disease focused. Even when I joined Biomarin, I was told by other executives that there would never be another rare disease developed at Biomarin after the MPS-1. I was seriously told that, but I thought, Stan, if I move inside the company, I can advocate for those diseases. And I did step by step, one by one. As we added product after product, they always succeeded, Stan, and all the other stuff failed. (laughs) Biomarin became a rare disease company because seven out of seven succeeded and all the other ones didn't. Like a lot of the rare disease companies, it didn't, even Genzyme didn't start as a rare disease company. They staggered their way into it. And and then, uh, and you're 100% right, uh, the, the value of a drug is an incredible amount of leverage for good. And, and more than you can do as a single practitioner, as a single scientist, for sure. Right. And I think too few people realize how much, how much value is created out of the leverage of a good medicine. 
So then you went to Biomarin and and you 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 had successes with a, a number of products, and the the diseases are different, but the solution was the same, which is enzyme replacement for MDS and for phenylketonuria and and even Batten's disease, if I recall correctly, is that right? Yes, several lysosomal diseases, mm-hmm. MPS one, MPS six, MPS four A. Mm-hmm. And uh, CLN2 or late infantile battens. Also worked on Kuvan and PegPal for PKU. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in addition, Vasoratide, which is this, the, um, the new drug for achondroplasia. Yeah, no, achondroplasia so, wasn't a replacement therapy, was it? No, achondroplasia was a very novel strategy where an academic physician, Bill Wilcox, came up with a strategy on how to treat a mutant a mutant receptor by using a hormone that had an equal opposite downstream signaling effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like one hormone to counterbalance the abnormal receptor, which I thought was the coolest idea. And I had no way, I had no idea how to treat chondroplasia. And I told people, we should try this. And people said, no one's done it before. I said, yeah, but there's no other way to treat that disease. So why not take the shot? Mm-hmm. And honestly, in a few months, we came up with a a version of their hormone that was stable, just got approved, Stan. Congratulations. It's a, it's a hormone to treat achondroplasia. I think that's a, a disease people thought would never get treated. I agree Not with you. Know. And, you know, I think it brings us to a general message. One and, and is that, that everything is a set of pathways. And as we understand the pathways, it opens up opportunities that were not obvious. Uh, and in, in the case of uh, achondroplasia, a, 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 an opportunity that was very far afield from what you had done before, right? Yeah. Yes. But we learned a lot about taking risks for really important results. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it wouldn't take long to stand to figure out if you could do it. And if you could, what a great result that was. So yeah. it's been a guiding principle in all the work we've done since then is don't fear taking a small risk to figure out something that will work, but if it will and have a huge impact, it's worth it. And I was very happy to see Vasoratide approved and really getting utilized, like a lot of families are using it. So I think it's a great testament to the importance of the work. And that's wonderful. And, and just to make sure everybody understands, achondroplasia is a form of dwarfism. And, right. And so it's a lot of short stature people with other but it isn't just stature it's also a bunch of other problems that they have and to be able to do something about that is a great achievement and then um so tell me about um why you uh, founded ultragenics and left your cushy job at biomarin for an even riskier opportunity well biomarin had grown and evolved and there's a point 11 years in with three approvals that began to be different company from the one I was joined and I felt like there was time to do some other things. I left actually to start a foundation. The foundation was to focus on regulatory policy around rare diseases. And we worked for a number of years on the cure, what I call the cure the process campaign. And um, that foundation of the every life foundation for rare disease still operates and goes, and I'm on the board. Um, But after about a year of doing that and getting it going, I came up with the thought of starting another company. I hadn't thought about it, Stan, but I realized there were so many parents coming to me trying to get help to treat their kids. As you know from your experience with Enlarm, 
that I felt like I couldn't not do more treatments. Yeah. Yeah. So I founded Ultragenics to focus on ultra rare genetic disorders. And we started off with very simple, small molecules and simple proteins. And ultimately the idea was to build a company treating each disease with the right mode. And we've added over time gene therapy and other things. But it was about doing a company that was built about rare diseases from the beginning with the right philosophical view of taking care of people before approval, after approval, and assuring that whatever we develop becomes accessible to patients that need it. And that's a a higher level responsibility in how we operate as a company. Well, it's obviously something I believe in We hope you're enjoying the Enlorem Patient Empowerment Program podcast. We at Enlorem want to provide support to our podcast listeners the best way that we can. There's no better way for us to do that than to ask you directly. Do you have questions you want to ask Stan Crook? Stan will be taking questions directly from you and other podcast listeners and dedicating an entire episode towards answering your questions, AMA style. If you're a nano-rare disease patient, family member, friend, physician, rare disease advocate, or you just enjoy the podcast, we want to hear questions from you. Please don't be shy. All questions are important and may end up helping other listeners. So don't miss a great opportunity to get your questions answered by the Patient Empowerment Program host, CEO of Enlorem, and the father of anti-sense technology himself, Dr. Stan Crook. To submit a question for the upcoming Q&A episode, email podcast at nlorem.org. That's podcast at n-l-o-r-e-m.org with the subject line podcast question. If you wish to be identified, mention your name in the email. If not, we'll keep your submission anonymous. We can't wait to hear from you. Now back to the episode. So let's, uh, that brings us to every life which is an interesting foundation and uh, you know I'm familiar with it because some of the publications and uh, you know for example the 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 publication that describes the economic impact of rare diseases and so on in the US mm-hmm. and uh, it, 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 it to my mind is first and foremost a, 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 a foundation that engages in relevant scholarship on these diseases, and um, and and obviously you and others have participated in the revolution in treating rare diseases. Which uh, I'm interested in. The way I look at it, it uh, the patient voice was the key event here, and it really began with AIDS, and then the recognition that that patient voice matters and getting that in front of the FDA and other and companies and so on. Is that is that your view of the history of it or do you have a different perspective? Oh, I think the patient voice piece is very important and the the rehabilitation of the patient's role because the patients had been reduced to being emotional and non-rational people somehow, and no one bothered to actually ask them. And that harmed drug development. And I think now we're much more working with rare disease patients as partners in the process, continuing to evolve and improve that model. But I think it's the regulators also are starting to connect and realize that they are an important contributor to the whole process. I think the other piece though is on the regulation and the law and and that the FDA applies and their guidance as an approach are an important part of what the foundation was working on. 
A lot of this is maybe technical about the details of how accelerated approval is evaluated or how biomarkers are qualified or study designs and other technical pieces. So at the foundation, we did a little a bit of that work too, trying to move the ball forward on the quality of the development strategies and the regulation. Building the patient voice in was just part of that bigger picture of improving the quality of drug development. And it involved a lot of workshops a lot of investigational reports and analyses as you were talking about, and to some extent discussing in Capitol Hill, what are the needs of rare disease patients and having the patients come to the Hill during rare disease week where hundreds of patient advocates come together and we send them out on the Hill to talk to their congressmen on the very same day, give them the kind of bulk that a common disease has, but with all the individual rare disease patients gathered together as one team. Yeah, I think, um, of course, I've been in the industry long enough to remember way before you, and uh, and there was no patient voice, and and I think the the industry has benefited tremendously, and the FDA uh, has benefited tre- tremendously by integrating the perspective of the patient and. And uh, obviously, you've spent a lot of time thinking about clinical trials and what endpoints ought to be and how we should go at that. But I think we'll leave that for another conversation because that does get pretty technical. Um, and uh, if, if you were to pick one thing that every life did that you're really proud of, what would, what it, would it be? I think it's gathering together the rare disease community truly during rare disease week where we actually bring hundreds of people together from all different segments we and help all of them actually find a common vision and a common voice mm-hmm. i think that's what we've been has been most important mm-hmm. because they then don't feel alone they feel empowered and rejuvenated and i think it propagates across the country so I think it's bringing the whole community together has been really important and in that enabling and empowering them to actually take action on behalf of their disease area. Yeah, that's very much what this podcast series is about for the even less, even more poorly served or non-served and, and N of one people literally don't have anyone to talk to. And, and, and again, I think that's a matter of providing a forum, a place to be heard, but also a place to be taught because certainly my experience is that parents and patients are doing remarkable things with no training. What could they do if they had some training? Mm-hmm. And I know you've thought a lot about that too. And, uh, and at, at Ultragenics, you have a, what you call a boot camp, uh, which I spoke at this year. But uh, why don't you tell our folks about what that is and how that's, how, how that's working? Well, one of the philosophies underpinning Ultragenics as a rare disease company was that we would use our knowledge to help everyone around us do work on their disease. The idea that we won't work on every disease, but we can help others be successful. That involved a lot of individual one-on-one consulting. And uh, with time, Yael Weiss, one of our employees, felt that we could be even more effective by grouping together some people and creating a boot camp a several-day in-person, a place where a small group of selected family foundations or small nonprofits could come with their drug development questions 
and get trained and insight from experts in the field and build camaraderie among themselves as well as make relationships with others that would help advance the development of treatments for their care. And the boot camp followed, follows up with some consulting and help that we do pro bono for um, families. And we think it's the kind of camaraderie and shared ecosystem to solve rare disease. It's an important part of being a rare disease company. Mm-hmm. How do you measure the value that you create out of bootcamp? Well, I, I measure it because of the number of families who actually developed the drug and treated their kid, right? Um, one of the early ones, Lori Sames, who has a kid with GAN, and she got her kid treated. And that was such a great thing to see. And you, of course, familiar with, you know, the other NM1 cases that are out there. Most recently, Terry Pervilaki's developed a gene therapy for his, his SPG50-affected child and got him treated and sends me pictures of that. So I measure it in another disease after disease actually getting a treatment to a few patients and that is um you know it's priceless in terms of what it means for your career to know that you've helped make that happen yeah i've had the privilege of putting a lot of drugs on the market and and having that experience and of course in lorem is I describe it as more, much more like practicing medicine for me. It's one patient at a time. It's that intimacy that that you don't get when you're developing drugs commercially. And, um, of course, your pipeline has small molecules. It has enzyme replacements. It has antibodies. It has genes. It has antisense. Um, early on, I talked with you and all the gene therapy companies about whether... Uh, gene therapy was ready to sort of be industrialized to take on the nanorare patient. And I think most everybody concluded that no, not yet, for a variety of reasons. Um, what do you think needs to happen for gene therapy to get to the place where it can be applied as as, as innocence technology is today? I think the biggest challenge is manufacturing scale and costs. Um, that, that is where I think it's challenged. Now, because we're talking about single dosing, it does help, but it's very hard to develop a manufacturing process that may take tens of millions of dollars and have only one kid get treated, right? Yeah. And while there can be ways to leverage and simplify, the truth is it hasn't really dramatically altered the cost structure of getting there. I think that is the biggest um, number one issue. More and more, though, there are people focused on CNS, intrathecal CNS strategies for gene therapy, like Terry did for his son with SPG50, where they're just plugging and playing another vector in an AV9 and and are able to get a few million dollars put together to do the manufacturing. And so there there may be some improvements if you can narrow this, what you're doing. And if you're using a particular IV strategy, intrathecal strategy, the amount of vector you need is less. So Manufacturing, Dan, that's the biggest issue. And um, I think getting to high quality, lower cost manufacturing would have the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's still a lot to be learned too. And mm-hmm. and where you have nearly zero cell turnover in the central nervous system, that's not the case in the rest of the organs. And so 
I, I think when you move out of the brain, it becomes even more challenging. But uh, obviously, at Enlarm, we are uh, anxious to see gene therapy progress to the place where it can help because we can't fix non-mutations. So let's move on then to Enlorum. And uh, first of all, I want our our listeners to know that you and Ultragenics have been incredibly supportive, and we appreciate that. And and um, of course, you at, in yourself and Ultragenics, you have plenty of places to put your money. That's <laughs> that's never the issue. Um, what is it about Enlorum that convinced you that investing in Enlorum made some sense? Well, it definitely a large number of ultra rares are so rare that the traditional drug development path is just not going to be plausible. And I've worked on some very rare ones, but when you have a few dozen or less, it's just, there's just no way to get the traction with a company to invest. And therefore then you start looking at strategies in which you can customize the development of a treatment and do it at scale appropriate for that and get it done. And I think the use of antisense oligonucleotides and the enormous approach is that you could custom create therapies that would actually address very small populations. And unlike, let's say, making an enzyme or a biologic, you can kind of plug and play the sequence and the chemistry. You don't have to create a whole huge manufacturing system to produce it. So the ability to plug and play the sequence and chemistries means that you can make small watt drugs and make that work in a time frame and a cost structure that I think is plausible for approaching some of the rarest of the diseases. Yeah, we're doing it. I mean, and we've already proven it can be done. And now the now the the, the next step is to prove that it's sustainable as a charitable um, endeavor and uh, with support from you and many others in the industry, I think we're well on our way to doing that. So, uh, Emily, I, I want to thank you very much for for participating. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, I guess the biggest question right now is what what can we do to help rare diseases get treated and I am working on one thing, Stan. I'm I'm working on us improving the ability to accept primary disease activity biomarkers. That's a type of biomarker that really affects, uh, reflects the underlying disease as clinical endpoints to get approval. That we need to change the paradigm of drug development. And in a lot of these ultra rare diseases, if you wait for clinical endpoints, they take so long, there's so much variation and many diseases will have irreversible symptoms by the time you treat that you'll never get to the end. And we as a country have to get smarter about using the primary cause of disease as a true measure of disease and understand that we can develop drugs better than you can any other way. Just like HIV drugs and viral load, Stan, can you imagine developing a a quadrivalent combination highly active retroviral therapy using clinical endpoints? Mm -hmm. Impossible. It's time to enter the 21st century and use the proper disease activity biomarkers as the true measures of disease and transform our drug development system into a really effective, efficient system. And that means uh... getting past our limitations and our angst about biomarkers and starting to realize 
we need a precision medicine equivalent for the measurement of disease. I and agree that's my big you. my big question and answer. And and as you know, I strongly agree. I think you call it the tyranny of statistics and the in and you know, it, it goes well beyond rare diseases. The bigger problems are in the large diseases where you have to treat a a massive number of people, each of whom probably has a different disease that just got categorized as diabetes or whatnot. And I think there's a great deal of work to be done there. And I think the lessons that will be learned from enlorum and ultra-rare and rare diseases eventually will be applied. And, And I would assume that you also strongly agree that among the things we all have to work toward is adoption of of of, of genomic sequencing as a, as a standard part of newborn uh, screening, or at least symptomatic patient evaluation. Yeah, yeah. At I, minimum, right? You know, it's, hap- it's happening in other countries, uh, uh, and you know the cost is coming down and. If you think about what cost you would save by getting to these patients, actually understanding what the prevalence of nanorare and other kinds of mutations is and getting them to them before they've progressed to the place that they're almost impossible to treat. So um, I think um, what's encouraged me in, in, in doing Enlorum is the tremendous momentum behind this. And, and in, in the regulatory community, uh, in the Office of Science Technology, the president, and throughout the industry. So we all recognize that there's a desperate need here and that if we, the only way we're going to get it done is band together and, 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 and work together. So again, thank you very much for the opportunity to interview you and uh, all your support in the past. And I'm sure we'll have opportunities to work together again in the future. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, thank you, Emil, and, uh, and, and thanks everyone for joining us and look forward to the next podcast uh, that's coming up real soon. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Patient Empowerment Program is brought to you by Altergenics. Altergenics is on a mission to transform the lives of people living with rare and ultra-rare diseases and is a proud partner of the Enlorum Foundation. With multiple approved therapies and a deep pipeline of potential treatments and development, Altergenics is going beyond every day for the rare disease community. Learn more about how Altergenics is leading the future of rare disease medicine at altergenics.com. That's U-L-T-R-A-G-E-N-Y-X.com. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorum as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorum comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorum or today's episode, visit enlorum.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorum.org. Search Enlorum on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson 
of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.